The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for coming tonight. Tonight I'll be talking about this uh, particular discourse of the Buddha, or Sutta, Sutta or Sutra in Sanskrit means a discourse, a talk given by the Buddha. And uh, this particular talk sometimes translated as the relaxation of thoughts or the removal of distracting thoughts. And it's an important discourse because often, uh, appropriately so, we often think that meditation, mindfulness meditation practice, or more generally this path of waking up is really just about letting things be and not uh, intentionally taking care of the mind. But we just let the mind, in a sense, take care of itself. And in a sense, that's true. But there are times when we want to take a more active approach to the mind. And I think that, similarly, that's so useful is to think about skillful parenting. And to be a good parent, sometimes you need to be quite assertive, engaged. You need to actually grab your child and say, no, you can't do that. It's dangerous. And all the different skill, art of you know, redirecting your child's attention away from what's dangerous toward what's safe. But sometimes, you know, when the kids are already safe, it's actually inappropriate to get engaged. You just let them alone. You know, they're doing something that's safe. You just can have sort of a low-key attention. I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, this other talk the Buddha gave where he said, you know, sometimes when the crops are ripe, and you're taking your cattle through the farm area, you got to really be on top of the cattle because you don't want them to walk through the crops and destroy them. But at the end of the season, when the crops have been harvested, the farmers don't care if the cattle wander through the fields and poop here and there or eat this and that. So you don't have to be so watchful, so careful. So when we're working with our mind, which is really all day long, not just when we're sitting, First and foremost, you know, working with the mind means we're taking responsibility for the way the mind is. And if the mind is being destructive, if the activity of the mind is harmful to ourselves or others, we want to do something about it. The first step is the most subtle, ultimately the most effective, but not always going to work. And it's what we call being mindful. So before we take out the big guns and, as I'll talk about at the end of the evening, you know, crush mind with the mo- with mind, as the Buddha says, the most gross strategy. There's so many more subtle strategies we can use to take care of the mind. There's, I was reading an article, and there's a great uh, line from a gardener: If you see a weed pluck it. And if we see the mind engaged in some activity that leads to more and more weeds, leads to the mind being overcome by what's not useful, what's not good, then we should take care of it. 
and it doesn't really help to put it off. It doesn't help to get afraid. doesn't help to ignore. What helps is to be really skillful. Oh, there's a weed in the mind. You know, there's an unwholesome tendency in the mind. What can be done to remove this? What can be done to prevent this from coming back in the mind? What can be done to establish the mind in, an, in another, more wholesome direction? So it won't, this other unskillful quality won't re-arise. This is the appropriate attitude to have about the mind. In a way, more than anything else, more than protecting our children, protecting our community, our world, first and foremost, we have to take care of the mind. How are we going to take care of our kids, our partners, our friends, our communities, if we don't know how to take care of our own mind? Sometimes you, you know, you hear people talk about they have kids, you know, but they can't even take care of their car, can't even, and it's the same thing, you know, it's like we shouldn't be allowed out of kindergarten, you know, or whatever, unless we can have sort of rudimentary skills of taking care of our mind. Keeping the mind happy, keeping the mind free of, you know, in Buddhism we often refer to the, the disturbances or the distortion or the poison, sometimes it's translated, you know, the defilement. We talk about them in terms of qualities of greed or craving, qualities of aversion, which include hatred and fear, and qualities of delusion or distractedness or denial. So three unwholesome roots. And out of these three unwholesome roots, you know, there are innumerable unskillful mind states that would fall under the category of craving, aversion, or delusion. Things like envy or impatience or lust or you know, denial. We just find one of these three categories and then it's, oh yeah, this is like, this is a quality of delusion. So first and foremost, when we have some sense that the mind is under the influence of something, some unwholesome, unskillful mind state, then the first strategy would be just to be open, clear, and relaxed. Oh, wisely understanding, it's like this now. Because that is a powerful movement. If there's enough balance, if mindfulness has enough momentum, and we go from being attached to this unskillful mind state to recognizing, oh, it's like this. Okay, then we're seeing that that greediness, that aversion, that delusion, we're just seeing it, in a sense, we're seeing it as nature. It's not that Mark is being greedy or Mark is being aversive, but there's this movement, this thought movement that is greediness, that is aversive, that is deluding. And we see it as a movement of nature, an impersonal movement of nature. And if the mind is balanced enough, the mind immediately seeing it in this way as a movement of nature instead of me doing, me thinking, me believing, it immediately removes the attachment or identification from the mind state. And the interesting thing is the attachment that feeds the mind state. So without being identified with greed or aversion, that greed or aversion, it will bloom, but then it's going to fall away and it's not going to re-arise unless the mind 
is identified with it. Everything, absolutely everything, arises and passes away. So if we're not feeding the unwholesome roots, the unwholesome qualities of mind with identification, with attachment, they will naturally cease on their own if mindfulness, wisdom, is clear, balanced enough. But if it isn't, so there we are, we're noticing we're really angry at somebody or something, and we remember to be mindful, and we're doing our best to be mindful, but despite doing our best to be mindful, we're really attached. It may look like we're being mindful. Oh, yeah, I'm angry. Yeah, I'm angry. Yeah, I should be angry. But we're not just aware of the anger as a natural, uh, a movement of nature. It just, it still feels like I'm angry. There's a personal ownership of the toxic emotion or the unwholesome emotion. So then we need to take up one of these five strategies. We don't want to let the mind continually be swept away, proliferating with anger, with greediness or craving, with delusion or denial. We want to do something. We want to be creative to see what can be done. It's almost as if the mind is asking, honey, you know, speaking to ourselves, honey, what can be done to free the mind from this unskillful, obsessive space? What can be done? Surely there must be something that can be done. And then we might remember, in that moment, we might remember, oh yeah, I remember. The Buddha gave a talk about this. He said, there are five things you can do. When mindfulness doesn't work, when mindfulness isn't strong enough to cause unwholesome states to fall away on their own, simply by seeing them wisely as just thought, just emotion, and they arise and they cease, then the first thing we do, and I'll just read the discourse because it's, I just find it inspiring that somebody writing or speaking more than 2,500 years ago can talk about the mind in a way that doesn't get dated. You know, that way of seeing the way he saw and understood the mind and could articulate the process of the mind makes perfect sense to me. So the Buddha says, Practitioners, when pursuing the higher mind, the expansive and free mind, right? From time to time, one should give attention to five themes. What are the five? Here, when a practitioner is giving attention to some experience, and owing to that experience, there arises in one unwholesome thoughts connected with craving, hatred, or delusion, then one should, should give attention to some other sign connected to what's wholesome. Well, this is just common sense. So we're taking the attention, and the image the Buddha gives is just as a skilled carpenter would take a solid wooden peg and pound it into a rotten peg, pushing the rotten peg out, replacing it with a solid, fresh, new wood peg. In the same way, a practitioner takes his or her attention and places it on something wholesome. Wholeheartedly, we give ourselves to some wholesome thought. Now, a lot of times we think in Buddhist practice we don't use thinking, but of course, that's just not true. I mean, obviously, it is nice in, in moments in practice when the thinking dissipates or quiets down, and there's just a more a sense of 
a more open, quiet, peaceful, bright, balanced state of the mind. I mean, that's a really beautiful mind state to encounter in life and meditation practice. But that doesn't mean thinking is bad. Thinking is bad when it promotes contracted states of mind, contracted states of being. Thinking is good when it supports the release of contracted states. It's really that simple. And that's just helpful to understand generally what is skillful is any activity, any thought, any study that leads to the mind, heart, body releasing. Releasing what? We're releasing suffering, releasing stress, releasing any uh, psychic weight, dropping it. That's what wholesome means. And unwholesome means any activity, any thinking, any way of being that promotes contraction, promotes a psychic weight. So the Buddha says, you know, this is like to help you remember this first strategy. So, and these strategies are going to go from strategies that are relatively subtle to strategies that are relatively gross. So we always start with the most subtle, which is just to be awake to what's happening, to be mindful, to bring wisdom to what's happening. That doesn't work. Then we try this first strategy, which is called substitution or replacement, where we're inserting some wholesome thinking into the mind and giving our, in a sense, we're giving ourselves to that wholesome thinking wholeheartedly. Just like we hold on to a, a life raft wholeheartedly. And you know, the Buddha in other talks, he clarified exactly what are those wholesome thoughts to give ourselves to. And it's specific to what's uh, distorting or corrupting the mind. So for example, if you have a lot of sensual desire for like another person, you really have a strong sexual desire for another person, the Buddha would say, oh, you know, the, you know, if you analyze that situation, and probably everybody has experienced that situation, and even if it's not a sexual attraction, just say you just really want that person to like you, want that person to you know, want to be around you, appreciate you, respect you. Well, when there's strong craving, strong like, oh, I need this person to like me or want me or whatever, then probably that strong attraction, that strong attachment is dependent on not seeing things clearly. We're seeing some things about that person. Mostly we're focusing on what we like, what we think is cool, what we you know, respect, right? But we're not paying attention to the other qualities of that person. So one of the ways to um, free the mind from strong lust or strong attraction is to bring a more balanced view by seeing what we're not seeing. Now, sometimes in the Buddhist text, we say, well, you, you look at the foulness or the um, unpleasant qualities of that person. But it's not like you're saying that person is bad. You're just balancing the attention. You know how it is. When we see somebody attractive, we're just focusing on, it's actually silly when you, when you are honest with yourself and you really acknowledge what it is you're noticing about that person personality or their body or the way they're dressed or whatever it might be, 
and you see the attraction that that's generating, it's really silly. But we get lost in the energy of attraction and causes all kinds of suffering in our lives. I mean, think about how many relatively wholesome relationships were destroyed because somebody got confused by a curve or got confused by, you know, somebody's whatever, you know, sense of humor. I mean, it, it can be relatively trivial what ca captivates the mind. So the first strategy to weaken and free the mind from attraction is to just intentionally balance one's perception of the thing you're really attracted to. Now, for all of these strategies, there's going to be a shadow. I mean, the one thing that's great about just being mindful is there's really no shadow, no downside to mindfulness. If we have enough wisdom and mindfulness and just see that that attraction is just a state of mind, just a thought coming and going, there's no harm. Now, here we're involving thinking. I'm actually thinking, okay, let me analyze, let me think. What am I not seeing? Let me balance my perception. What are the things about this person that are unpleasant, as opposed to just focusing on what's pleasant? Or you could even think about it like if you're fascinated by a physical object, like a new car, or a new iPhone, or a new house, or a new job. You could also do the same thing. You could reflect on how it's impermanent, how you can't really grasp it. You can't really own it in the way you want it. I got it. Because nothing stays stable. Things keep changing. So if you reflect on no, you're not making this up. So you're balancing your perception with what you've been unconsciously avoiding seeing. <clears throat> so a lot of people think when they hear this uh, teaching and they're not hearing it in a balanced way, they think somehow the Buddha is teaching us to be negative. We should be negative. You know, we've got to pay attention to what's wrong with somebody or what's wrong with some object. But it's just having an honest view, a balanced view, all the facts on the table. Oh, this is what it is. Even in the most wholesome relationships we've had in our lives, have you met anybody or have you had any relationship that did involve struggle or difficulty as well as really wonderful moments, beautiful moments? And that's just how life is. Life is messy in that way. It isn't just beautiful. If it was just beautiful, we wouldn't be human beings. In a Buddhist cosmo uh, cosmology, you know, we'd be in a high angelic realm <laughs> where everything is just beautiful. And there are problems there, too. Right? Because when everything is beautiful, like in our life, in those days or those months or years when things generally are going really well, it's very easy to think we're home free until we get sick, until somebody leaves us, until we lose somebody we love, or the world comes crashing in on us for some reason. So there are even problems when things are working well. So it's a really good skill to have to balance our attention. So whenever you feel a lot of joy, a lot of attraction to what's beautiful in your life, then there's nothing wrong with being mindful of beauty, mindful of joy, but when a passion comes in, then we're suffering. And that's the key. We don't need to be afraid of what's beautiful or what's pleasant, but we should be concerned with attachment to what's beautiful and pleasant. 
You understand the distinction? So when there is attachment or identification with what's beautiful, then the first strategy, and mindfulness isn't going to free the mind from that, then the first strategy is to look at what we're missing. Now how about if we're full of aversion or fear or hatred? How do we substitute that? What would be the opposite of that? Forget where this is from, but somebody once said, you know, you can, you can take dry sticks, dry branches, and beat a fire and put it out, but it's not a very skillful way to put out a fire. You can do it, but it's, it's dangerous, and you can have, you know, it can go the other way. The best way to put out a fire is to throw something opposite on it, like water. And so this is what we're doing. Craving, the different kinds of craving, depend on not seeing the impermanent and unpleasant nature of the things we crave. So we bring them in. That's the water to craving. Well, what's the water to aversion? Well, the water to aversion is loving-kindness. So anyway, creatively, any way we can bring loving-kindness, compassion, joy into the mind when it's obsessed with fear, hatred, irritation, impatience, then hatred, all of the different manifestations of aversion, they can't really be maintained if the heart-mind is in contact with loving-kindness. And the more we wholeheartedly give the mind, give one's attention to loving-kindness, the more completely aversion is removed from the mind. And again, it's not about pushing the aversion away, because the only way to push aversion away is with aversion. Right? So it's really about giving. It has to be a positive movement where we're positively giving ourselves two thoughts of loving-kindness. Now, the best way to do this is to train in loving-kindness all life long. So then in those moments when we really are overwhelmed by hatred, aversion, fear, one of the manifestations of aversion, there's already this groove in the mind, this movement towards loving-kindness. The mind already knows it. So we can just go there. Some of you know, like this Friday, the first Friday of April, we will have our monthly loving-kindness practice group at 7 o'clock. So the first Friday of the month, we do the formal loving-kindness practice from the Buddhist tradition. But there are many expressions of loving-kindness practice from different spiritual religious traditions. Or you can make up your own. But you might as well learn the traditional Buddhist practice because it will give you a framework to be creative with the loving-kindness practices. Because it's really important that it go beyond some formulaic process, you know, where you repeat, just repeating the phrases, going through the motion. It's really about intuitively finding the mind's capacity to be kind, to be generous, to be loving, to be happy, to be joyful. So even if my mind is completely filled with aversion, defensiveness, fear, I should be able to, you know, now having trained my mind for a long time, I should be able to find some, however tiny, some seed of the feeling, the experience of loving-kindness at any moment of my life. And then you see it's just a matter of where I put my attention. So even though there are 99 experiences, sort of intentions in my mind right now that would continue the aversion, the hatred, the fear, the defensiveness, if there's just one little intention, I care about the suffering, for example, 
or this is probably hard for her or him too, this argument, or oh, here's my cat sitting on the bed, you know, here I am hating, thinking about what happened today and really hating the people involved, and there's my cat oblivious to all of that. I love you, sweetie. Right? So these other 99 things may be huge and completely seemingly dominating the mind, but that one thing, if I choose to pay attention to that one thing, and in a sense I'm pouring my mind, my heart, into that one thing, it gets amplified by the sincerity, the completeness of the attention. And all of that hatred, that fear, that defensiveness will fall away. Not because I'm pushing it away, but because I'm giving myself to the thought of my cat on the bed who I can't do anything but care about. So this is, this works. And this, you know, there are many different, no matter what toxic, unskillful state of mind the mind might be obsessing, obsessing with, there is something opposite of it that you can find in that present moment and turn one's attention, however subtle that might be, and by focusing, training the mind to stay there because it's like a way of protecting herself, we will remove the unwholesome states from the mind. And the way we remember it is just remembering the word replacement or substitution. So, of course, the first strategy is always to be mindful of whatever difficult state of mind there might be. If that doesn't help the mind to release, to be free, then practice substitution or replacing the mind's fixation on what's unwholesome with attention to what is wholesome. Find something wholesome. In particular, find something opposite of what the obsession is that's wholesome and stick with it. Like a dear friend, you know, he's like, okay, I'm going to stay close to you. I need your help right now. I'm not going to let my mind, my attention deviate from you, you know, hand in hand until this negative tendency is out of the mind. Then you don't need to hold so much to that replacement thought. But as long as the unwholesome tendencies are there in the mind attracting the, the attention, then we stay very close to the substitution thought. So that's number one. Number two, the Buddha says, if while doing that, some other sign connected with Oops, is that it? Let's see. If while giving attention to some other sign connected with what is wholesome, right, we're doing the substitution, there still arises in one unwholesome thoughts connected with craving, hatred, and delusion. Then one should examine the danger in those thoughts thus. These thoughts are unwholesome. They are reprehensible. They result in suffering. In other words, oh my God, you know, the thinking in this way is dangerous. I'm in danger. I'm in need of protection. And the image the Buddha gives is pretty provocative. He says, just as a man or a woman, young, youthful, fond of ornaments, would be horrified, humiliated, and disgusted if the carcass of a snake or a dog or a human being were hung around his or her neck, so too, when one examines the danger in those thoughts thus, these thoughts are unwholesome. They are reprehensible. They result in suffering. Then any evil, unwholesome thought connected with craving, hatred, and delusion 
are abandoned, subside. With the abandoning of them, the mind becomes steady, quiet, unified, concentrated. Right? So, in the same way that we can use substitution, if that doesn't work, we don't give up. We don't just let the mind be swept away into proliferation, obsession, and what's unwholesome. We try something else. So again, now we're still thinking. We're using skillful thinking. And it's very easy for this to have a shadow of like self-hatred. So here we are, we're noticing that I'm obsessing about what I really want, this person I really want, this thing I really want, or this person I really hate, or this thing I really hate, or just fantasizing in some distracted, denial kind of way. So however the mind is caught in an unwholesome state, in a way we step back, we've tried substitution, we're still getting sucked in, seduced by this distraction. And then we step back in a moment and we go, oh my God, I'm obsessing in this way. We're just acknowledging, being truthful to ourselves. In one moment, we're just acknowledging, oh, I'm just stewing in hatred. I'm just practicing hating this person. What am I setting in motion here? Like the mind or heart that's involved in this unwholesome thinking, if this happens today and tomorrow and the next day and the next week and the next month and the next year, what kind of mind or heart will there be? And is this the kind of mind or heart I wish to inhabit? So we actually want to horrify ourselves. I mean, obviously the Buddhists being a little provocative here, but you get, you get the sense there is a place in wisdom for a wholesome concern to arise like, oh my God. Is this, is this what I actually want to set in motion? Because that fear has protected us and has protected people since the beginning of time. I mean, imagine if we, this is what we call conscience, right? We have a conscience like, ooh, this doesn't feel right. And what is that conscience telling us? Like, I don't really want to be the person who does this kind of thing. You know, I don't want to be the person who cheats, or I don't want to be the person who steals, I don't want to be the person who gossips, I don't want to be the person who hates. This is not the mind or heart I want to live in, live with. And that's what the Buddha means by looking around and saying, I'm disgusted by what this activity. And you see how in a skillful way, the heart just lets go. We continue in unwholesome ways because we don't feel, taste, see how unwholesome it is. If we did, we'd let it go. And the fact is we're doing this all the time anyway. So really what this strategy is about is making what we're doing unconsciously conscious. Because unconsciously, we're, we're already all the time abandoning. There's something that just has a bad taste, leaves a bad taste in the mouth, and we just naturally, maybe unconsciously, avoid going there again. That just didn't feel good. That didn't have a good aftertaste. And then we just don't indulge in that. You know, like uh, maybe you read some blog, you know, where somebody was just being really hateful. But you kind of agree with his or her opinion, but they really, there was something toxic about how they were talking about the other side, you know, the dumb people or the bad people. And you kind of indulged in it. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Then later, you kind of, you know, you sort of felt like, oh, 
mostly that was about, you know, hatred. It didn't feel good. Even though the point might be well taken, but the attitude was really toxic. And it's like the heart, oh, I don't want to go back there. I don't want to be inside that mind space. I don't want to occupy that mind space anymore. So you could call this second strategy reflecting on the results or reflecting on the consequence of the particular mind state, unwholesome mind state that we're caught in. We're projecting out into the future and in a sense asking yourself, is that what I want? Will that be useful or helpful in any way? And then naturally a concern will arise and that concern is exactly what we need. This is a wholesome fear, like, oh, I really don't want to go there. I don't really want to become that. And it's that pain of that concern that allows for the dropping of that attachment, that identification with that particular wholesome uh, mental pattern. So that's the second. The third, then, so we have mindfulness. When mindfulness doesn't work, we can practice substitution. When substitution doesn't work, we can practice reflecting on the consequences or the results. If that doesn't work, the next one the Buddha says, so if while examining the danger in those thoughts, there still arises in one unwholesome, um, let's see, I lost my face here. Unwholesome thoughts connected with craving, hatred, and delusion, then one should try to forget those thoughts and should not give attention to them. So you could call this ignoring or redirecting the mind. So substitution, we're redirecting the mind to something skillful. Now, we're a little bit more caught. We haven't been able to do that. We haven't been able to, to think about the consequences effectively. So now we're just trying to find something to give the mind to do so it doesn't keep doing what it's going to do otherwise, right? And you can think about this in terms of a parent, you know, and the kid wants to play with something dangerous and the parent hands the kid another toy. You know, even do it with our cat. You know, the cat wants to, our cat wants to scratch on the woodwork sometimes, you know, so we spend a lot of money on fancy cat scratchers, you know. We <laughs> put catnip on it and how about this? <laughs> this would be better. And the thing about the way our minds work is when something's out of sight, very quickly it's out of mind. You know, with a child, if you take a, a dangerous thing away, initially they may complain, depending on how old the child is, they might complain for quite a while. But eventually, even for an adult, we will forget what we are obsessing about if we're given something shiny and interesting <laughs> to play with. So this is why it works. Like if we're about to do something dangerous, you know, then maybe doing something maybe it isn't inherently skillful, but it isn't dangerous. It isn't dangerously unskillful. So, you know, if we're going to, you know, go out and drink too much, well, maybe it's totally appropriate to find a friend and go see a stupid movie. Because at least we're not going to be consuming alcohol and sort of perpetuating some addictive behavior. So there are many ways to redirect the attention that more skillful. And the Buddha says, just as a person with good eyes who did not want to see forms that had come within range of sight would either shut his or her eyes or look away, so too, one tries to forget those thoughts, does not give attention to them. Then any unwholesome thoughts connected with craving, hatred, and delusion are abandoned 
in one and subside. With the abandoning, the mind becomes steady, quieted, unified, and concentrated, balanced. Right back to mindfulness. Now mindfulness is once again strong because what was unwholesome and disturbing, distorting, agitating the mind is gone. But, so you know where we're going, the Buddha has always more. So if that doesn't work, if mindfulness doesn't work, we have substitution. If that doesn't work, we reflect on the consequences. If that doesn't work, we can ignore. If that doesn't work, the Buddha has a fourth strategy which we could call tracing back. So remember, the second strategy, we reflect out into the future. What am I setting in motion? When the mind is obsessing in this way, worrying, angry in this way, craving in this way, what life, what kind of life or mind is being set in motion? Is that what I want? Now, this fourth strategy is going back. It's saying, I'm obsessing in this way. How did this come to be? So, the actual discourse says, so if while trying to forget or ignore thoughts, there still arises unwholesome thoughts connected with craving, hatred, and delusion, then one should give attention to stilling the thought formation of those thoughts. And the Buddha gives the simile, just as if a person were running, they think, why am I running? Maybe I should walk. And then they start walking. The person thinks, why am I walking? Maybe I should just stand. The person standing and he or she thinks, why am I standing? Maybe I should sit down. And they're sitting down and they think, well, why am I sitting? Why not just lie down? And the person lies down. So tracing back is that way where we're, well, now we're all whipped up because remember, this is an unwholesome, we're talking about unwholesome patterns, mental thinking patterns, right? So we're obsessing, we're, something's whipped up, some self-centered drama, whether it's around aversion, or craving, or some distraction, fantasy. And now we have some sense, you know, and we've tried to be mindful, we've tried to insert some wholesome thought, we try to reflect on the consequences, we try to ignore it. We're still caught. Still, the mind keeps going back and back and back to it. So now we're going to think. Now we could easily, this kind of thinking could easily itself be an obsession. Like, how did this come to be? But. Like I said, there's always going to be a shadow, but it's still better to do our best than to just let the mind spin in an unwholesome way. So we try to reflect, okay, I'm totally whipped up, caught in this drama. How did this come to be? In this one article, this uh, Buddhist scholar gives an example that I think is really good. He says, um, so if I'm having unkind thoughts toward another, for instance, I'm often able to see that those thoughts emerge out of a feeling of envy. Isn't that true that sometimes when people bug us, they bug us because they are or have something we want to be or we want to have, right? And then we just get irritated at them. It's not like we actually don't like them. We're just feeling envious. And so, and we look a little closer at the envy, right? So we're going from gross to subtle. That's that image of running to walking to standing to sitting to lying down. We're going from gross to subtle, so from feeling really angry or irritated by somebody to noticing, oh, it's a quieter, more subtle, but more important emotion to notice, oh, I'm envious. Oh, I'm just envious, I'm jealous. And then looking a little bit more, we see, oh, there's this sense of lack in my life. Like a sense of I don't have enough. It's even beyond like what they have, what I'm envious about. It's just like an emptiness in my heart. Like, 
and we look a little closer and there's a sense of a somebody who needs something. And when we trace back, it sets up this possibility of recognizing this, this subtle but profound misperception, misapprehension that, that there actually is a somebody who doesn't have something. Now, we may have a sense that there's a somebody who doesn't have something. But if you notice, if you actually do this honestly, like you can do it right now, let's just all of us right now look in our own experience. Is there actually somebody right now who needs something? In this moment, as it actually is for us, do we need things to be other than they are? You know, sometimes we want to punch people when they say, this moment is perfect. You know, it's like, it feels like an insult. Because on the surface of our life, like if we're thinking about how little money we have in the IRA or our retirement, you know, if we're accepting about this big dramatic picture of I'm here, I'm going to retire there, how how's that going to work? And somebody says, this moment is perfect. And we really, it feels insulting. And it can actually come from an insulting place, you know, depending on where the person's coming from. But when we actually look at a moment, honestly, directly, we see that that perception that there's somebody in need is a construction of the mind. And when we look closely, that construction falls apart. And there isn't a sense of lack. The sense of lack, which I guarantee, I mean, I know we all experience the sense of lack. I experience it. But I've realized over and over again that that's a construction, that my mind is creating that experience of lack, that existential need or unworthiness or whatever particular flavor it might have in a particular moment. So when I look, it's not there. And this is the whole point of tracing back. We're going from the whipped up drama back. How did that come to be? How did that come to be? How did, and we get right back to this basic misapprehension that there's a somebody here who needs something. But is that in fact our actual experience right now? And we have to look. This isn't something we can do intellectually. We actually have to look in the most subtle way at our experience in the moment to see is there fundamentally an experience of lack. Because you know when we look at even if there is a feeling of lack, when we open to the lack because right? that's what the tracing back is. We're just looking at whatever we see is behind something, and we look at that, and what's behind that. Until we get to the last thing, and then we look at that. But then we see, so let's say there's a, a, a deep feeling of lack, a deep feeling of insecurity or whatever, or danger, deep down, subtle, existential sense of uneasiness, right? But we look at it. Now, the mindfulness of that sense of danger or, or anxiety is the awareness of anxiety anxious? You see, so we remove the one who lacks or the one who's anxious by being aware of it. Because the awareness isn't colored by what's being known. So that's the misapprehension is that we've gotten identified with a mind state and we've lost our refuge, our grounding in awareness, in wisdom. And that's what the tracing back can do for us. And there's one more, right? So even if that tracing back doesn't work, like every time we're tracing back 
we, there's like, and there's many of these feedback loops, like as we're tracing back, the mindfulness waivers will get sucked right back into the assessing. And it feels like we're doing the right thing, thinking about like how this came to be, but actually we're just in the drama of the anger or the craving. So then the last thing, when nothing else works, the Buddha says, then with one's teeth clenched and tongue pressed against the roof of the mouth, one beats down, constrains, and crushes mind with mind. Just as a strong person might seize a weaker one by the head or shoulders and beat one down, beat them down, constrain them, crush them, so too with one's teeth clenched, tongue pressed against the roof of the mouth, one beats down, constrains, crushes mind with mind. Then any unwholesome thoughts connected with craving, hatred, and delusion are abandoned in one, subside. With the abandoning, the mind becomes steadied, steady, quieted, brought to unity, concentrated. So you could call this maybe suppression. I actually looked up the word suppression in the dictionary. It isn't the first definition, but maybe the second or third definition I liked a lot. It said forceful prevention putting down by power or authority. And this actually, I think, is exactly right. What allows us to crush mind with mind, and I know that's a bit of a provocative way of talking about it, but it is a sense of authority where the wisdom of the mind is saying, anything is better than to let my mind do an anger, fantasize craving over and over again. Anything is better, including you know, generating this power of resolve. Honey, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to do that. No. And exactly as a parent would do. You know, sometimes a parent doesn't try to reason with their kid. They say, no, no, to your room, you know. I, I don't want to necessarily justify this, but, you know, I used to work with children with behavior problems in the public schools, in Minneapolis public schools back in the 90s early 90s and you know there were times we had to restrain children and you know we got taught how to do that and put them in the basket hold them if you know you wrap your legs around and you grab both arms and you and they're restrained you know and because if the child is going to do harm to themselves and others you have to do something because it's not okay to say well that's you know I did my best no if you really care about the safety of everyone concerned you're going to do whatever it takes to keep everybody safe. It's just we don't want to lead with that strategy. That's the most gross, right? It's the strategy that has sort of the biggest shadow, so easy to abuse it, because, of course, this could easily justify anger. We can justify being angry at our own wholesome mind states. And, of course, we don't want to practice being angry, because we're already pretty good at that. But we can do this out of love. In fact, all five of these strategies, substitution or replacement, reflecting on the consequences, ignoring or redirecting the mind, tracing back, so we're reflecting on how things came to be, from gross to the subtle causes, and crushing mind with mind or suppression. All of these uh, strategies come out of love or compassion. We care about the mind more than anything. In fact, all of the love we have for our cats and our partners and our family and our world and our communities, it's just some 
you know, reflection or expression coming out of our love for self. If we don't actually love the mind, the heart, this life, how are we able, like, what is our model for loving others? A lot of people think they're loving others, but their love is really a way of avoiding taking care of themselves and feeling their own pain. And they're looking in their relationships, their loving relationships, they're looking at a way to avoid doing their own work of kind of um, purifying or taking care of their own relationship to their own life, their own mind, their own heart, their own experience. So we really need to start here. So I'll leave it here. I um, wish we had more time, but we have about six minutes. It would be nice if anybody has any questions about these strategies, or even better, maybe any examples from your own practice you'd like to share with the group, from your sitting practice or your daily life practice. Yeah. Ellen, is that right? Yeah. Nice and loud, Ellen, so people can hear you. That's a problem right there, of course. <laughs> Well, I think it's a really good point. So Ellen was saying she met somebody who uh, identified with being a Buddhist and felt that that person was uh, repressing their anger and used the identity of being a Buddhist as part of that repression pattern. And but you know, and I know you know this, Ellen. You don't have to be a Buddhist to repress your emotions. You know, because emotions are messy. And so the human tendency is to repress 
repress them or to try to control them. And so we swing generally, human beings generally swing between repression to avoid the messiness of our emotions and then when they explode then to sort of an, uh, a non-wise expression of emotion where we're lost in the emotions, identified with them. Both ways, both the repression and the uh, attached, identified expression of emotion, both are really the same thing. Because if I believe I have to repress emotion, have to be afraid of emotion, then that's a kind of identification too. Like I'm identified with the idea that these are bad emotions, these are unnatural, and I, and I just don't want them in my life. And here we're identified, I deserve to be angry, you know. This person's wrong. I should seek my revenge. You know, I, I have every right to hate them, to resent them. Both were identified. Now, the way that we'll really uh, take care of this problem is if the person, anybody, whether they identify as a Buddhist or not, doesn't matter. What matters is that people understand that everything that's wholesome has to arise out of wisdom or understanding. Like, the only way we can really address our predicament as a human being is to be to bring in more understanding, more wisdom. So it's about intimacy. It's about being connected with the way it actually is. It's the only way forward in life. And then, so any time you think about what's evil or unwholesome, then it's the opposite. It's about being disconnected or repressed or afraid, like afraid to see or feel or in denial distracted. These are actually unwholesome because if we're not connected to what is, the way that it is, the way that the mind is in particular, how, how the heck are we going to be skillful? So the pattern is you start with mindfulness. You start by doing your best to open to the way that it is, the way the mind is right now. What's moving in the mind? What emotions, what images, what thoughts, what intentions? How is it now? And can that can the, whatever mindfulness, whatever wisdom we have, can it, in a sense, create the space for that movement of mental activity to be seen as it actually is? So that's not denial. That's not repression. That's an unconditional opening to the whole mess of the mind in that moment, but not being confused by it. Now, if that doesn't work, then we try to bring in, through our previous practice, we try to bring in something wholesome, like, you know, and then from there on. So if you always start with opening, with mindfulness, then you won't have the problem that you describe. But what happens is people uh, think, whether they're a Buddhist or however they might identify with them, they think anger is wrong. But the whole point is anger is just anger. That's the whole teaching. So nobody's a Buddhist if they think anger is wrong. Anger is just nature. It's the only thing that's a problem. The only problem is identification with the anger. It's taking the anger personally creates a really toxic situation. But anger, like, if you said something like, let's say you really did challenge me in a way that made me defensive, and that defensiveness came up in me, which happened for me, then there's nothing I can do about that. But if I take that defensiveness personally, then I'm planting seeds that are going to have consequences down the road. But if that defensiveness comes, then I'm able to be mindful of it, or if I can't be mindful of it, I'm able to sort of care about, like, 
bring compassion for myself for having this defensiveness, then I can protect myself with that compassion. If that doesn't work, I can reflect, do I really want to be the defensive person the rest of my life? That I can manage the defensiveness and prevent the mind from getting identified with it. And that's really our work. It's not about repressing the defensiveness. It's about not being confused by it. And I know that's a subtle difference, but it's a really important one. I'm really glad you brought that up because it's very easy. It's a shadow of Buddhism because the people understand the teaching superficially they think it's just about not being angry. But it's all about process. You know, how do we work with the anger that does arise? How do we work with the greed that does arise? We have to leave it here. Thanks, Alan, for bringing that up. And let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Take a deep breath or two together. just reflecting on this heart, this mind, and committing, letting it be our working ground. This is the place of our learning. And may our practice lead to great skill, the capacity to be open and intimate and engaged with life as it actually is for us be a cause for kindness and peace and freedom from suffering in the world and in our hearts. So may this be. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.